It's another episode of React Native Radio Podcast. Brought to you by Vim. You can find it in my cold, dead hands. Episode 192, A Day in the Life of a React Native Developer. Hey everyone, welcome to the React Native Radio Podcast, where we explore React Native together. I'm your host, founder and CTO of Infinite Red, Jamin Holmgren, coming to you live, well, not really live, but recorded a couple of weeks ago, probably, if you're listening to this, from snowy Vancouver in south southwest Washington state. I'm on the React Native core team and also primary maintainer of, of MobX State Tree, and I'm joined today by my phenomenal co-host, Robin Hines, Aditi and Harris couldn't make it today. Robin is a senior software engineer located in Portland, Oregon. At uh, She works at Infinite Red. She specializes in React Native and podcasting, of course. What's <laughs> up, Robin? Do you have any snow left over there in uh, kind of, I guess it's west of Portland where you live? Yeah, we live sort of southwest of Portland. We only have the piles of snow uh, next to our driveway left from shoveling. But otherwise, it's all gone a balmy like 40 45 degrees out <laughs> yeah We're probably I mean, like the warmest in the country right now probably yeah <laughs> it, it turned pretty mild we have we still have snow on the ground uh but i, I gotta tell you a tractor story of course of uh, course of course it wouldn't be a react native radio without it i uh so we got we got our first like load of snow but when was it like was it thursday was it like a week ago something thursday, like thursday friday last yeah week. yeah and immediately I like had to grab my tractor and go out there and, and clear the driveway because, you know, that's that's part of the reason I got it was <laughs> to have it for stuff like that. So I was having lots of fun. I was pushing snow around and uh, I got the driveway cleared and pushed stuff off to the side and, and whatnot. It did a pretty good job. And then I put the tractor away, got up the next morning and it was completely socked in with snow again. So it was like I didn't do anything at all. You just have to look at it like a gift. They gave you the gift of getting (laughs) to do it again again and spending more time with your tractor. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. I went out (laughs) there and I, and I pushed snow around again and I got it all cleared uh, again. And then I managed to actually get my tractor stuck. Uh, So my tractor is four wheel drive, but it has like turf tires, which are basically like lawnmower tires. It doesn't have like the big, you know, knobby tires that a lot of tractors have. So I was messing around in the woods with it and I got it uh, a little bit buried in (laughs) in dirt but you know I'll tell you what my dad who owned an excavation company he he saw he always said a a tractor or a backhoe you can't really get them stuck because they have too many ways to get out and it's true because like all I had to do was stick the bucket down and like push myself back a couple inches and keep doing that until I got myself out of the swamp. I've seen some crazy videos of the stuff that like loaders and excavators and stuff can do by like using their bucket as leverage yeah yeah it's like wild appendages and backhoes especially they have basically things out every side because they have the loader out the front they have the backhoe out the back and then they have these stabilizers on the side and their four-wheel drive they pretty much have everything invincible invincible (laughs) just ask my dad he's never gotten stuck in one so he says this episode is sponsored by Infinite Red. Infinite Red is a premier React Native design and development agency located fully remote in the USA and Canada. We have years of React Native experience. We host Chain React when it does happen, and we publish the React Native newsletter. We also obviously host this podcast and do lots of other cool things like open source with Ignite, Reactatron, you name it. We are the best choice for your next React Native app. Hit us up, hello at infinite.red, or just email me directly, jamin at infinite.red. You can learn more on our website, infinite.red slash react native. Don't forget to mention that you heard about us through the React Native radio podcast. And also we are hiring. So go to our fancy new form, careers.infinite.red. We are hiring senior level React Native engineers who are located in the USA or Canada at this time. Now, that's very topical actually for the... For the topic that we have, we're going to be describing what a day in the life of a React Native engineer is. 
And so this is going to be, I think, uh, kind of fun to go through. You know, if you're someone who is new to React Native and just exploring it, I'll probably send this episode to people, you know, the link to people and say, hey, listen to this if they're <laughs> interested in knowing what it's like. Also, if you are considering switching from maybe another type of business, you know, toward consulting, you know, we're going to be talking about it from a consulting standpoint, obviously, yeah, since that's what both of us do. Uh if you're looking at switching technologies, what kind of, you know, challenges do you run into doing React Native? So we're going to talk about a day in the life of a React Native developer. Specifically one who works at Infinite Red, but I imagine it'll it'll apply pretty generally. Yeah, that's the hope. Uh, obviously, we are, you know, we're, we're speaking from our own perspective. We can't really say what it, what it's like to work at Facebook as a React Native engineer, but but we can we can talk about our, our perspective for sure. With that in mind, obviously, we're a React Native consultancy, so we don't make our own React Native apps. We help other companies build theirs. So everybody has their own process. If you're if you're working at a company, they're probably going to be using something like Jira or Trello or Asana or I don't know. What are some other ones, Robin? Basecamp. Basecamp. Yeah, I don't know. We've used quite a few in the past. But let's talk about like how we approach a new feature and what the day might look like. And I'm going to be asking you a lot of questions, Robin, if that's okay, because, you know, my day looks a little differently. Different. <laughs> <laughs> CTO at Infinite Red. Yes, it definitely does. Yeah, that, that sounds good. Let's start off with just some basics. Like, what, what computer do you use? I have a pretty much fully loaded MacBook Pro uh, 2019 16 inch yeah that's what i have as well uh it's a great computer it's not an m1 it would have been nice to know that that was coming but it's not an m1 it has its little quirks it's it's a huge step up from my 2016 macbook pro which is what i upgraded from and the keyboard is much better yeah totally do you have other devices around you? What what else do you have? I do have a lot of devices. Uh, I wouldn't say that I test with them on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. I usually I usually rely pretty heavily on the simulator and the mm-hmm. emulator. But I do have, uh, like, I have my personal like my my regular iPhone is what I use for iOS testing a lot. And mm-hmm. I also have I have a slightly older iPhone, an iPhone six that to test like older slower phones. I have a Pixel two. For testing Android, I have some Samsung devices. I have a couple tablets. Yep. Mostly for breaking out when when there's specific bugs or when I'm sort of doing overall testing passes to make sure everything looks good on on real devices. But yeah, day to day, I mostly spend my time in the simulator and emulator. This is sort of a challenge of being a remote company. And I know people are running into this now, but we can't just have like a big bank of devices, you know, kind of a common communal pool of devices that you can just grab and say hey i need a i need a moto g or something and that's true that is true i my a previous company where i was it was an office we had an an, basically a server rack like full-size server rack full of just like every flavor of device and you could go check them out and do your testing and put them back and it was a really slick system so doing this remotely has been a bit of a challenge yeah a lot of duplication. Everyone kind of has to have their yeah. own set. Yeah, which is a positive and a negative at the same time. Uh, positive because obviously it's all your stuff and you can kind of keep it how you want it. Negative because, well, everybody has to have, you know, duplication <laughs> all over. I do take advantage of finding refurbished devices yeah. on Amazon. Uh, yeah. Most of my devices are refurbished or open box. That honestly is better anyway, because most people aren't using things on brand new devices. Uh, it's better to have stuff that's a few years old. <laughs> I, I have a bunch of devices as well. And when I broke them out and I was putting them, you know, in my office, my nine-year-old came up to me and her her 12-year-old sister had just gotten a phone, uh, you know, because sometimes she'll she'll babysit or whatever. And she like picks up one of the iPhones. She's like, dad, here's an iPhone. I'm like, yeah. She's like, could I have it? I'm like, you're nine. You don't need a phone. You don't need to start that addiction right now. <laughs> it's plenty bad enough. Of, plenty of time in your life. Plenty of time. Yeah. Go be a kid for a while uh, and yeah, enjoy it. But yeah, don't don't get into that. Dad has plenty of, of phones uh, laying around, but that's not what they're for. Yep. So beyond hardware, um, 
what just basic tools do you use? Are you a Vim person? Do you use VS Code? What do you use? I use VS Code. I was a Vim person in a former life. And at one point, I just decided that the value wasn't worth the, so the downsides. Vim. I quit Vim. I didn't even think that was possible. <laughs> yes, I quit Vim. Uh, partly because like, I got into the React Native world mm-hmm. and the JavaScript world, and it was much more common for people to use IDEs and especially yeah. specifically VS Code was really common. And I found that if I was using Vim, it was really difficult if I needed to pair with someone or show someone something. Yeah. Like they would have trouble like figuring out what was going on and like how to do things on my machine. That's true. I wanted more in common with sort of the community and my colleagues. And I finally admitted that I I really liked having uh, a traditional user interface. <laughs> <laughs> Do you use Vim binding, like key bindings? No, not at all. I think I did for maybe a week. Yeah. Mm, No, it's just easier just to use the VS Code shortcuts. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm more of a traditional, uh, I mean, I used like, well, I started with like Dreamweaver, but then I went to Sublime Text 2, and then I went to, for a little while, I used Atom. And for a while, I actually had like two computers, and one computer had Atom, and the other one had VS Code, I think. And so I was switching between the two. But Adam was just so slow. It was so, you know, I don't know what it was about it. It was just so slow, hard to keep up with. So like VS Code, some, some, like something about the way that it's built, it just seems to perform so much better. Yeah, it does. It really does. It kind of rules, rules the space now. So I know you use other software and stuff, but we probably won't dig into that right now. I want to talk more about like what a typical day looks like. You're working on a project. You're probably working with what? One or two other people, uh, most likely. Yep. Yeah. You might be in the middle of a project. You're in the middle of a project and there's a new feature that you need to now take on. You've already kind of, you you just shipped something and now you're moving on to the next thing. What happens first? Well, I'd say first, if if I'm sort of warming up into the day, like, you know, roll in, you check Slack. Somebody posted a PR at the end of the day yesterday. A pull request. A pull request. Yeah. So I'll go, like, I'll go look at that, give some feedback, some, like, Maybe some examples of stuff I might say. Maybe a colleague uh, is using a utility function in a couple of different places, and I suggest moving it into a shared hook. Right. I noticed they were using a timestamp in some mock data that was in seconds instead of milliseconds. That'll ruin your day. That'll ruin your day. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That kind of stuff, I think. Are these real examples? These are real examples, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'll notice things like like pulling data from a navigation param and not persisting it in some other more permanent way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll make maybe suggest storing it in MobX state tree so that it'll persist yeah. between refreshes. Yep, uh, that kind of thing. Typos. So you're you're scanning down. Do you just start like at the top and just review straight from the top all the way down uh, like a diff? I guess for for people maybe that are new to programming, a pull request you'll actually see a diff, which is like we we modified this line, we deleted this line, we added this line, we added this file. And you can kind of see it all the way down GitHub. And uh, so do you kind of just start at the top and work your way down? Do you have a certain process around that? Yeah, I'll usually go by the the file hierarchy and I'll just go file by file. Mm-hmm. I'll usually skip over files that just seem like they have a lot of white space changes or mm-hmm. like packaged yeah. like yarn.lock or like snapshot differences. Yeah, I'll usually go file by file and just see what jumps out at me. Yep. Sometimes if it's a particularly complex feature, I'll actually pull the branch down okay. and, and run it and check the features. Uh, if it's a more simple feature, I'll usually rely on uh, the screenshots and the videos or GIFs that were included with the PR. I yeah. always recommend including if it's a visual feature or some kind of like functionality that you can see including screenshots or GIFs or a video if it's really long. Yeah, totally. Uh, having the, those types of things on a pull request are really helpful to people that are that are reviewing. Another thing I like to do, which I, I don't know if everybody likes doing this, but I like to actually go down and comment on my own PR uh, and say, hey, this is why I did this. This is why I did that. Just give some uh, context around the changes. Sometimes that's better in like code comments actually in the code, but not always. Sometimes it's like, I changed this from this. We don't need that to live in there forever. It just needs to, you know, be mm-hmm. in the PR. Yeah, I, I'll do that as well. Sometimes, like, I'll I'll have to make a decision between 
putting it in the PR description where it's more mm-hmm. sort of historical and permanent uh, versus putting it in the like in line in mm-hmm. the code. Because yeah. sometimes if it's in line in the code and there's changes, like those comments can sometimes disappear if the yeah. if the code gets outdated. Yeah. So if it's something that I I want as like a permanent like record, I'll mm-hmm. usually put it in the PR description or in the commit message. Or like yeah. you said, in comments in in the code itself. It's kind of interesting, just in a little aside, Git really isn't everything about the history of a code base. GitHub is, or Bitbucket or whatever you're using, mm-hmm. that like those two things working together are the full history. Because uh, Git itself holds a history of changes, but it doesn't hold a history of conversations and uh, explanations and and you know, whatnot. So that, that's, that's kind of an interesting piece of this. Now you have me curious if you rebase your code and like rewrite Git history, does GitHub or Bitbucket have any kind of like memory or log of what it was before you rebased? I, you know, I haven't tested this. I feel like they do, like they hang on to more stuff than you would think. Um, but I could be wrong about that. I'd have to test that. That's a different can of worms there. but So the big thing here, though, is you're reviewing a teammate's code and you're right. looking through it and you have context around it because you've probably seen this code before and you've maybe even worked on it. And then after you're done kind of providing your feedback, you then what do you do next? If it's significant enough feedback that I want them to make changes, I'll like indicate that. Mm-hmm. If if they're not significant enough, they're just like suggestions. Mm-hmm then I'll go ahead and approve it and move on. And they can either, they can choose to. They can either choose to address it and make changes or merge it and move on with their lives. Yeah. 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 Yeah, That's very cool. Now you might have a pull request that's out there as well. Is this also gathering comments and and whatnot? Yeah. Usually at the beginning of the day, I, my ideal work, like workflow, like cadence is getting finished with a feature at the end of the day and opening a PR and then like, closing my computer and being on my merry way that doesn't <laughs> it doesn't happen actually all that often but i was gonna say is that like every <laughs> single day you do that <laughs> not every single day definitely i love it when it works out that way but mm-hmm. uh, so if i've had a pr open from the previous day i'll go check it and there's usually comments and i'll maybe push up a commit or two uh fixing small things if it's good after that i'll merge it or have our qa team test it mm-hmm. and merge it depends on what what your particular team workflow is. I have to say my particular workflow, like if I was working with you every day committing code, you would notice this and you probably have noticed this anyway. I have a hard time encapsulating things into small bite-sized chunks. I love (laughs) big sprawling changes. That's how I love to work. Jamin lives for, what is it? Git commit dash A or something. I just Where you have, just like you just like you add everything exactly unstaged in your works, but you don't even like look at what you're no. adding. You just like no. add everything. It's all good. <laughs> it's all getting out there. It's shipping. <laughs> yeah, I have a command GAC, get add and commit. Right. That's what I it should was. do GACD. It should be get add de- commit deploy. <laughs> and then Y for YOLO. I don't know. It's <laughs> which is so different from what I do, where I like I'll uh, go through. I use uh, Git add dash mm-hmm. p. Yeah. Every single time, where it steps me through every single change that I made, so I can confirm that yes, I want right. to add this. Yes, I want to add this. I definitely don't recommend my way of working for working within a team, and it's something that when I do work within a team, I have to modulate that. I have to really, really work hard to. You know, honestly, I'm working on an internal project right now. And at first we were working together on stuff and then it got to be where it was kind of just me because everybody got busy and I I feel myself moving back into those old habits. There's (laughs) literally a Jamin branch that is just accruing stuff. And I have a PR out called tons of updates. Oh, I need to review that. That reminds me. (laughs) Good luck. (laughs) 14 commits. Approve, Uh, I think. (laughs) I did put comments on things, but there's, there have been five commits on it since. It's just, I don't know. I mean, I I don't even know what to say except for I'm sorry. (laughs) And you know, things are getting done. I'll tell you that things are getting done. It is 
it is taking shape. And sometimes like, sorry to take this whole aside here, but sometimes I feel like on these sort of like this internal project, we just need sort of the basic thing, you know, hacked out with an ax here. And then after it's up, like maybe we can start using more fine grain tools to, to shape it. But it's, uh, that's kind of where I'm at right now. So yeah, you're, you're quite different in that. And I definitely would recommend people follow Robin's example here. Uh, yeah. Jamin's a really, really great manager. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'll take that as a positive. <laughs> it didn't sound like one. All right. Anyway. Um, so yeah, so you're, you have some, some, you know, you, you might have a PR out there and then you'll address comments that have come in on your own pull request as well. Yeah, this is like me doing my paperwork for the morning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then uh, now, now it's time to to move into the new feature. Like, what what's where where are you at there? Right. So I'll I, I'm this this is assuming I'm sort of in between features, and so I'll go to the our our sprint backlog, which is the features that we've chosen for this particular sprint. And if you're not familiar with Agile, a sprint is a chunk of time, usually one or two weeks, where you pull you pick up a predefined collection of work that you're committing to complete within the sprint uh, and usually depending on the team you'll assign things to team members at the beginning and sort of so everyone kind of knows what they're going to work on some teams don't do that some teams like you just have a, a backlog for the team for the sprint and people pick up with whatever's available when when they have time um, we generally tend to assign things out ahead of time so that Mm-hmm. Maybe there's areas that particular people are more familiar with or mm-hmm. have been working on and have context for. Um, so I'll usually go and pick up the next thing that's assigned to me for the sake of this day in the life example. Uh, this is uh, going to be a new component, a new visual component mm-hmm. in the app. It's a component that is uh, basically the backside of a card and it has mm-hmm. uh, a bunch of text in various sections like there's a title section and a description and a subtitle and an, and then sort of a table with pa- like value pairs like label and value pairs mm-hmm. yep uh, so it's a, a pretty straightforward visual component so i'll pick up the card if it's in jira i'll i'll do like the the workflow changes like i'll say oh it's in progress and so i'm like officially starting work on it i'll I'll do sort of the, the the get busy work, make a branch, make sure my workspace, my like Git workspace is clean, mm-hmm. that I've like pulled in the latest master and everything's up to date. And I'll usually make sure the app is running on my on my clean branch before I've made any changes, so that I know I'm sort of starting in a good place. I, that sounds like to me. I'm I'm hearing pain that has been caused by not doing that in the past. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Because I've been in situations where I've started working on something and then I'm like, hey, this old bug is popping up. And I'm like, oh, I didn't pull, I didn't pull master. Yeah. Yeah. And then if you've already made work, then you have to like stash it. And maybe there's conflicts now when you Mm -hmm. try and merge. Yeah. So it's conflicts. making sure, making sure that you're working with a clean slate and that everything's good to go and it also it also helps you sort of have peace of mind that you know kind of where things started so it if issues arise while you're working you kind of have a sense whether you created them or whether they existed right before. that's really important knowing kind of where you're starting you got to have kind of an anchor point like mm-hmm. where are we starting here yeah totally makes sense to me so you're um now you're uh, you're moving on into the the component. You want to create the first component. You just create a file and start typing. What do you do? Uh, most of the time, we're working on projects that are Ignite projects. Ignite, of course, being our project boilerplate generator that we... It's, a, it's an open source project. You can go check it out. We'll put it in the show notes. Now, Ignite Flame does not have generators anymore. Is that right? It does have generators, actually. It has really cool ones. But Oh, that's right. They're more configurable and they're yeah they're more configurable but they're also less flexible uh almost all of our projects are ignite projects so Mm -hmm. when i start a new component i use ignite generators i just run ignite generate component i with the name that i'm choosing for my component Mm -hmm. 
uh, and it gives me a generic component file, story file. In a folder, yeah. In a folder, uh, yeah. ready to go. Mm-hmm. Um, at this point, what I usually do is uh, get the app running in storybook mode mm-hmm. and just have it running the the generic generated component. That's okay, talk about Storybook for a second. Storybook, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, so Storybook is a library that lets you, it, it sort of serves multiple purposes. It lets you build components sort of in a vacuum uh, and then also gives you a way to sort of create a library of all your components. So you're displaying like, oh, here's my button, here's my card, here's mm-hmm. my like, all of your various uh, quote unquote dumb components. Yep. Let's you sort of display them in a list. Uh, and I use it when I'm developing components so that uh, the sort of the other context of my app layout and everything is irrelevant. I'm just what goes into the component and what does it look like sort of in a vacuum. Right. But that involves running the app in storybook mode. Mm-hmm. So you'll see yep. this the storybook interface, which has sort of a navigator so you can select between your various components. Uh, and then it has a, a main screen, which lets you display your component in in various states. So you can do like, oh, here's my component if this value is passed in props. And here it is if this other value is passed in props. Or you can do various different states that your component can exist in. Right. That's kind of the big value, right? Because like a lot of times when you build a component, it's like, oh, hey, it works really well for this one state. Mm -hmm. But then what happens when there's no data? Or what happens when Mm -hmm. You're in a loading state or if there's an error state, you need to have all those different states. And so Storybook kind of gives you tools to and actually kind of almost like pushes you to provide those states. Mm -hmm. Like it's kind of almost nudging you that direction, right? Right. So I'll usually have uh, a use case for just normal happy path expected values. Mm -hmm. And then I'll have something like, oh, really long title or Mm -hmm. a missing title or, you know, the various things that might happen if you're missing data or if your data is various different shapes or whatever can happen to it. I think that the the idea of breaking things down into subcomponents is a really key part of being an effective, well, a developer of any sort, to be honest, you could be doing this in, you know, as a desktop app, developer or whatever, but being able to break things down into their subcomponents and really think about them in terms of atomic units is is really big. But certainly in React Native, that's big because everything's a component. Every view is a component. Every Everything is, uh, even screens, full screens are components. And so you're composing from different elements and, and pieces and configuring those things in order to make them work. And obviously you're also styling them. We had a previous episode about styling. So that's part of this as well. Do you do the styling early or do you kind of do that, you know, toward the end after you rough it in? I generally do. I lay things out and then I style mm, afterwards. Yeah. And and styling is kind of, it's a pretty broad term. So like layout includes things like padding and margins and, and things like that, which is included in style, but I tend to do it first. But anyway, yeah, Storybook is really great. It keeps, it helps with a lot of different parts of component development. It, hel- mm-hmm. it helps keep components dumb, for lack of a better mm-hmm. word. It, keep, yeah. it helps keep you from making them know too much about the greater context so that you have to pass in everything that it's going to need to know as a prop. Yeah. So yeah, once I, I get the app running in Storybook mode uh, with my sort of default generated component and then mm-hmm. usually what I'll do next is define the the props for the component figure out what data it's going to need to be passed in yeah uh, and get that defined I'll make the typescript type for that in the component itself I was gonna say typescript comes into play here because that is obviously you know very helpful for interfaces and what you're talking about with props is an interface mm-hmm. and typescript uh, is obviously what we use. Uh, it's sort of a replacement for other systems like Flow or Prop Types. Right. But yeah, we use TypeScript so that we know exactly what uh, types our props will be. Uh, so I'll define that in the component itself. And then in the story, I will create some mock data in just sort of data that's going to look like what the actual data that'll be passed into this component will look like. Yep. And then I'll modify the story so it's passing in 
all of those things as props and then I'll re-render. And at this point, I'll start putting in sort of rough layout hierarchy, just sort of mm -hmm. views with with the the data from props just sort of put on the screen without any any fanciness, any styling, and just to make sure it all renders and the data is coming through the way I expect. At, at what point do you do you start finding value in in adding tests? Obviously, there's like just snapshot tests that we've used in the past or story shots. I think uh, Storybook has a feature called story shots. So are those helpful at this point or do they kind of not really add a lot of value there? So for building components like this, uh, the snapshot tests don't really come into play while you're building it. Uh, the value of the snapshots comes in when you're already done and you're trying to make sure down the line when you're building something else you're that, not breaking it. that you're not breaking what you've already built. So I don't really, uh, tests don't really come into play when I'm building components like this. I'll bring in sort of TDD, mm -hmm. test-driven development strategies more when I'm building models or like API mm. functions or utility utility files or services or other things that aren't really UI components. And obviously later you also have uh, integration end-to-end -end tests with Detox or, or Appium or, or along those lines. Those, those things will come in, but that's more after the integration has happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like I said, I'll create sort of a rough hierarchy of views. I'll usually put in empty styles at this point. Like I kind of use styles as labels for things in a way to sort of get my bearings about where I am and what the component looks like in my mental model of it. Right. Uh, so I'll put empty styles on things like title wrapper or like description wrapper, like views that'll be around the text components that will be the content. And I'll, I'll leave them empty for now, but just sort of so that I, it's not just a bunch of generic views. It's like, okay, right. I'm defining like, okay, this is going to be the title and this is going to be the description and sort of yeah. laying things out. Uh, and then once I have content and I'm sure that the content is rendering on the screen, then I'll start adding padding and margins mm -hmm. and sort of pushing things around and figuring out what needs, what needs flex, what needs like what alignment to give things, what justification to give things. Uh, and I sort of just keep tweaking until it looks right. What uh, like design tools are you using at this time, at this point to kind of, like I, we use a variety of different design tools. If our designers are working on it, you're probably working in Sketch. You probably have Envision as well as another tool. Uh, what other, like what, what design tools do you tend to be in and how are you using these? Are you looking, are you like measuring things and, and finding point pixel you know, numbers and, and font sizes and stuff like that? That's a really good question. Yeah. So if our designers have designed it or, uh, or other designers, a lot of them also use the same tools, um, but usually there'll be a sketch file or an Envision mm -hmm. mockup. And both of those will give me the ability to, to measure and see what spacing is exactly. Um, I also use a tool called Xscope. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's... I actually am not. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's something that one of our old developers at IR turned me on to, but okay. it's, um, it's basically a set of rulers and other sort of measuring tools for your machine. So you can measure things on your screen compared to other things. So like I'll measure and make sure things are like straight up and down and in a line, in like aligned with each other um, and then compare them to the... Like I'll put the mocks and the simulator side by side and make sure they're the same scale and then use rulers to sort of like make sure things are the same alignment and they look right. I am going to put Xscope in the show, no show notes and then I'm going to check it out later. That looks really cool. Yeah. So I, uh, I'll i usually have the designs up and right next to my simulator while I work. Yeah. By the way, do you have multiple monitors or one? I have one monitor, but I also have my laptop screen as a second monitor. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. So I have a big monitor and that's usually where I'll have VS, VS code. And sometimes I'll have the simulator on top of VS code mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and Reactatron. So I'll either be in like simulator and Reactatron together mode right. or I'll be in editor mode. And then on my laptop screen is usually where I have 
Slack and yeah, Slack and sense. Trello and sort of the other more administrative tools. Yeah, I kind of do the same. I have two monitors. Well, I have one monitor and my laptop, but I use my actually use my laptop display as my primary monitor, even though it's smaller. Um, and I use the other one, but I don't know, things move around a lot on my screen. It's just how I want to work. A lot of times I use, uh, like the Mac OS spaces as individual projects. Cause I'm often working, working on different projects. Mm. And so one space might have terminal and VS code and a Chrome instance. The next space might have terminal and VS code and an iOS simulator, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, so I'm jumping between spaces and then they're all there. And I tend to overlap. I don't go full screen. I, I overlap a little bit so that I can like click over to the other uh, view and it pops on top pretty easily uh, within my, but I, I've, I've noticed like uh, one of our developers, Julian, he has like one whole space is like a full screen VS code. And then he's got a whole nother space for something else. And he's switching spaces all the time in order to do that. I, yeah, I never have gotten into Mac OS spaces. I don't know why they just don't like work with my brain. Mm, yeah. I'm more able, I'm, it's more easy for me to keep track of sort of the layers on my one space. Mm. And I, yep. ut- I utilize alt tab a lot. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because of that, I guess I don't really use alt tab very often because I'm <laughs> swiping or I'm clicking on a partially like a lot of times I'll have the terminal on the left side and it's peeking out a little bit so I can see output, but it's not showing the whole terminal. And so when I want to jump over there, I can see like the first line of something, I'll click on it and it pops up. And then I go to the right and click on VS code and I'm back to that. And then on the far right, I've got the simulator. Everybody has different ways of laying out their workspace, but uh, yeah, that's interesting. I think I also stopped using spaces because I switched away from the magic mouse to a regular like scroll wheel mouse so i can't i can't use any of the swipe gestures, gestures yeah. anymore yeah. which kind of limits what i can do with yeah. certain features i use a trackpad like a separate ta- trackpad is it I the should, magic yeah, i trackpad? should do that i should do what ken used to do and have a trackpad on one side and a mouse on the other side your brother ken yes uh, he <laughs> uses track the trackpad on the left and a mouse on the right and that allows him to kind of get the best of both worlds big brain time (laughs) i actually i would have uh i did have like a vertical anchor mouse and uh for a while and then i would find myself reaching up and using the trackpad on my on my laptop so i would like switch between them that way like reaching up onto the stand where my laptop is uh anyway yeah developer micro (laughs) what are they micro ergonomics ergonomics yeah little things yeah (laughs) But uh, yeah, so you have it kind of wired up with fake data and stuff. Now you really need to, you need to integrate it into your actual app so that yeah. it, it shows up. What, you know, how do you do that? So once I'm pretty satisfied with how it looks in Storybook, um, I'll turn off Storybook mode and I'll go into uh, wherever this component is actually going to be rendered in my app layout. It's usually mm-hmm. on, on a screen or maybe it's inside of a parent component. Uh, I'll go to wherever it's being rendered and I'll add it there and I'll gather the the actual data that's going to go into it, which is usually managed by mm-hmm. either if it's a if it's going straight into a screen, like the screen's managing it from Mavic State Tree, mm-hmm. like calling an API to get it. I'm I'm at this point assuming that that's already happening, uh, that I've already set that up. But yeah, I'll get the I'll I'll render it and pass in the the real data and then I'll load the screen up and mess with layouts however they need to change in order to get it to look right. Uh, it, it may mean adding some kind of wrapper around it or some mm-hmm. padding to the parent component or whatever. Do you find yourself going back to Storybook and be like, ah, I didn't actually get that right? Sometimes. Sometimes. Usually there's some things that you shouldn't do within a component itself that a parent should be responsible for managing. Mm, Like if you ever find yourself putting a line self on your component Mm -hmm. or putting margins on the, the, the like root wrapper of your component, Mm. Mm -hmm. that's when you should like take a step back because anything that's like your component should manage what's inside of it. But anything Anything about your component, about where it is in space or like where it's rendering in the context of 
its parent should be determined by the parent. Gotcha. So occasionally stay I'll go lane. back, stay in your exactly, stay in your lane because you you want to make sure that like your component manages its own business, and if you're using it multiple places, that it's not doing something unexpected. Like you want to be able to control where it where it lives in space from the outside and not from the inside. That makes sense to me. So then it probably starts getting kind of exciting at that point because you actually are seeing it in context. It's like the the screen that had a blank spot before mm-hmm. now has something functioning there. It's a it's a button or it's a list view or it's a image or you know, really anything, any sort of component. It's uh, it's now coming to life. That's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, that's one of the really satisfying parts of UI development and one of the reasons I've really enjoyed being being in React Native yeah. after having been a sort of platform server backend developer for a long time. I found it I find it really satisfying to see something you just wrote come to life visually. Yeah. yeah. Uh yeah, it's really it's really cool. And then this is probably the point where if I haven't been testing on both devices or mm-hmm. both platforms, which you probably should be testing on both platforms, but if I mm-hmm. haven't been, uh, I'll pull up uh, usually Android because mm-hmm. iOS is my default mm-hmm. generally. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why. I, I think that's true for a lot of people. I'm not sure why. The emulator just... can be kind of a resource hog mm-hmm. and that I think slows a lot of people down. I think if the emulator worked better than the iOS simulator, it would be reversed, but that's just not the, the, the iOS simulator is very easy to use and it's very smooth. Uh, so I'll pop open Android make sure things still work. Mm-hmm. It's pretty, re- it's, for things like this, which are pretty straightforward mm-hmm. UI elements, it's pretty rare for Android to do something different. Lately, you've been having to do this on web too. So you actually have to pull it open in web as well. That's and true. For this particular project, there would be a, a web third platform. Yeah, a third platform to check. And then you could add many different TV uh, platforms. You could add uh, desktop. You could add mm-hmm. Windows. You could add Mac OS. Linux, I guess. Uh, you could add all kinds of other platforms if you really wanted to, and then you'd be testing it in all of those. So depending on how many platforms you're developing for, make sure to account for all of the time that you're going to spend testing on different platforms <laughs> when you estimate how long a feature is going to take. Yes. It could be at least half of your time spent. Yes. And you not only that, but within a particular platform, you might have different screen sizes. Yes, exactly. So in addition to pulling open Android, I'll maybe pull open an iPhone SE mm-hmm. or a really, a really, yeah, that's the the smallest. I don't actually I think it's discontinued now. What is it now? It's the iPhone 12. I don't know. I'm not sure. I think the SE is discontinued now, but the simulators yeah. are still there. But yeah. really small screens or I'll pull open a, a, what is like a an 11 plus max, max or plus, something yeah. <laughs> the max really the really really extra. big one yeah <laughs> the really huge ones they just keep adding modifiers to it <laughs> and make sure that i've used flexbox in the appropriate ways so that things mm-hmm. expand and shrink appropriately Usually when I bring out the small screens is when I realize I haven't put text wrapping on mm. or I haven't put, I haven't constrained widths properly. And so I'll go in and fix those, make sure that things wrap and shrink and truncate the way they should. This will also come into play when you're testing with large font sizes for accessibility, mm-hmm. things like that. You really need to be thinking about all of these things when you're building. And that can be, that can be a fair amount of work. Uh, but it's, you know, it's all worthwhile to go through all of this and make sure that it's working in all these. I think this is actually where a lot of maybe more new to the industry developers run into problems is they get it they finally get it working on the device that they're testing. And they're so relieved that they finally got it going that they just push it up and are like, okay, hey, it's done, you know? And then someone tests it on a slightly different <laughs> size of screen or they check it on Android and it breaks and they have to send it back and say, hey, this isn't done. And so knowing that, hey, okay, I got this working there, but now I need to go check all these other dusty corners and and uh, different states and, and whatnot. That's actually, I think the mark of a senior engineer is one that, that 
won't rest until they know that it works in all those different places. And then they will feel like, okay, it's, it's ready to go. Even seniors, I'll say this, this is usually the point where if there's some kind of really stressful deadline or you're being rushed by the powers that be, or like people <laughs> are getting impatient, this is generally when even seniors will fall into, okay, well, it's good enough. Yeah. Call it done and not go through the due diligence of testing all the edge cases. You can, as a developer, you can make a decision, this is good enough, we're going to move on, if it's done intentionally with mm -hmm. good communication. So you can say, I did not test this on Android. I did not test this on small screens. I did not do these things because you all told me <laughs> I need <laughs> exactly. to have this done today. You can have so, that conversation with your stakeholders. Yes. And if they're aware of the right. trade-offs, you can say, yeah. okay, it's good enough. Here, here's what you're getting for the time that you're willing to invest. And I'm more than willing to go back and do those things later if, if, and when they fall over. But, you know, I mean, there have been situations where we're building apps for literally one device, one type of device. You know, it's a situation maybe where the app will be used in a trade show and every booth that is going to be using it is going to be using an Apple iPad air, you know, of a certain vintage and, we know what it's going to go for. There's no point in testing it on a, on a, an Android device or, or anything like that. And that, that can be fine. That's a, that's a good trade-off to make as long as it's done intentionally. It's when it's like, Hey, everything is working, but then you didn't really think of the other things or you just ignore those things that can get everybody into trouble. It's about community. I mean, honestly, as people are listening to this, they're probably hearing a lot of communication happening as well. It's not just about writing code. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very true. So you're at a point where it's working well on all these different devices, different screen sizes, things like that. Is it time to ship now? Like, what, what do you do now? Uh, usually, uh, I'll be pretty satisfied at this point if it's if it's working on a lot of devices. Uh, so I'll go ahead and while I have all my devices open, I'll go ahead and take screenshots of various different states. Uh, I'll maybe reopen Storybook and take screenshots of my my various use cases in, in Storybook. Because uh, I think that's a pretty good sort of demo of what the component can do under various constraints. And then I'll commit everything uh, using git add dash p, mm -hmm. which Jamin doesn't use. <laughs> Making sure that I haven't added. Get YOLO. Yeah, which lets me go through and make sure I haven't left mm. any console logs in or no, by the way, I do I do use git add dash p. By the <laughs> way, it's uh, and, and I'll often also um, when I push up a PR, I'll also go through. I always go through the the diff and look at it, make sure nothing got in that <laughs> wasn't supposed to. But yes, uh, yeah, I, I am known for my YOLO tactics. <laughs> YOLO, uh, yeah. So I'll make sure there's nothing too unexpected in there. Commit it, push it up. I'll open a PR with a pretty detailed description of what I did. Maybe any caveats or like gotchas or hey take note of this uh this is why i made this decision i'll make sure to include those in the pr description and then add any screenshots or gifs i love making gifs if it's an interactive feature this is this is sort of a one-off component but if i'm making a feature where i'm adding functionality where the user can like interact with the app i'll usually take a gif what tool do you use for that i use uh, it's a tool called Giphy Capture. So okay. you know the GIF site Giphy? It's right. like the service. Mm -hmm. yeah. So they have a uh, a capture tool. Okay. Uh, which is intended for you to capture stuff and then upload it to Giphy. But I just, mm -hmm. I just don't do the upload step. Yeah. But it, it it's basically a sort of transparent overlay and you can move it anywhere on your screen and just press yeah. record and it'll record what's on your screen and then let yeah. you save it as a GIF and you can change the configuration. If the, like the file is going to be too big, you can decrease the pixel size or the frame rate right. uh, to get it as small as you need. And it's super easy. No, you don't have to like take a video and convert it. It's just like snap, click, save. Making it easier on your code reviewers will mean that you will get better quality reviews. Yes. And so that's what you're really looking for there. You're it's trying to... True give them a lot of context around what you did and and why you did things the way you did and then hopefully they will give you a good review yep i always appreciate it when my colleagues 
give me a reasonably sized PRs, mm-hmm. Jamin. What what was that? What was that tone all about? <laughs> reasonably sized, because if it's so huge that I can't digest it in. 15 or 20 minutes, I'm just going to be like, well, I'm just going to approve it because I have no idea what's going on. I mean, my latest PR, tons of updates, uh, only has 34 files changed and 730 lines of codes, code changed. Only. Added, actually. I did I did sub- subtract 37 lines. <laughs> <laughs> this one's particularly bad. Uh, and I have no I have no. You're excuses. building something new. So, of course, there's going to be a lot of lines new. added, but. Yeah. If I was working with other people, you know, in the project, I would definitely be doing things differently. Honestly, at this point, it's probably better for me to just push it to master and then be like, hey, everybody, I'm going to show you what I did. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably true. Uh, Yeah. So reasonably sized PRs, though, that's a very good point. And reasonably sized, well, well annotated Mm -hmm. with visuals. The thing that gets me, I think a lot of times is when I'm working on something, I'll notice stuff that needs to be like improved and it bugs me. And it's like, why don't I just improve it right now? Like improve this little thing over here or do this little thing over here, uh, refactor this or rename this. Um, it's very hard for me to like put a PR out there that I know is going to have like a, at least a day turnaround time before I get it back and uh, then have to work within the other one might end up with conflicts. You know what I mean? Like th- that can be problematic. I know you can, you can fork off of your, you can branch off of your, your PR and, and do that as well. But there's also a lot of uh, project teams have meetings, standups, mm-hmm. things like that. When do those kind of come into play? Uh, totally depends on the team. Our team personally has standup at right after lunch. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty, it's a pretty, uh, neutral time because we have people in different time zones mm-hmm. um, so yeah. you can be pretty sure that most everyone's going to be online around that time so we'll have a quick stand-up it's usually 10 minutes that's pretty good a lot of times stand-ups can stretch on and on and on if you're not careful that's <laughs> something that the project teams have to really pay attention to so that's with your project team now what about you know infinite red for example you know we're 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 at infinite red here. So, uh, do we have, we have other meetings. I know this because I'm usually the <laughs> one calling in them. them. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, when you, you fit those in as well. Yeah. We, so being a consultancy, I, I consider myself part of my client's team, but I'm also part of my infinite red team. And so I'll have meetings that are completely unrelated to my client's project that mm-hmm. I'll make time for. So we have biweekly, uh, infinite red team like all team meetings sometimes we'll have specific engineering team meetings yeah we just had one yesterday that was about vs code tips and tricks and this is one thing that as a consultancy and i think even in other development environments it, it can be similar where people get siloed and it's like people don't especially in remote work uh you don't get a chance to like see i'm not like standing next to you i'm like oh what did you just do there that's pretty cool or what what's that app that you're using that's cool like i'm not seeing that i'm seeing the the results of your work which is actually really cool for some reasons you know it's like it's very like results oriented rather than uh just how you work oriented but we also miss out on the good parts of that so uh a couple weeks ago one of my engineers asked me to help them kind of get up to speed better on vs code they were still struggling with optimizing their workflow. And so we did a one-on-one where I kind of taught them some different keyboard shortcuts with VS code and whatnot. And then after I was like, why don't I just do this with the whole engineering team? I feel like there's a lot of people that could benefit from this. It was, it was an optional thing. Like you, you didn't have to come, but I, I scheduled that and we did that yesterday where we all got together and then shared like, Hey, this is how I use multi-cursor support. This is a keyboard shortcut that I use all the time. This is, you know, whatever. And it was like a 45 minute meeting and it had like, it was just packed with all kinds of cool stuff. And, and we got some, uh, you know, I learned some things for sure. And I've been using VS code for a very long time. Yeah. I definitely learned some things too. I usually that kind of workflow optimization, I, I learned from other people. Uh, and I learned from, if I spend a lot of time pairing with someone, I'll be like, Oh wow, you just did that really fast. What did, what did you use for that? 
Yeah. And so if we don't make the time for that kind of sharing, it's yeah. it's not going to happen. So Exactly. Those meetings are are done. You're kind of getting toward the end of your day. How do you wrap things up? Usually I'll I'll sort of check the Slack, the Slack channels again, see if anything has really happened during the day while I was more heads down. Um, maybe I have to prep for the podcast that day, Mm -hmm. uh, or do some other sort of me specific work. Uh, and then usually I'll sign off and go get my daughter from daycare. And yeah. What, what about breaks during this? Like you're not just working straight through You're you're taking small breaks. I do eat occasionally. (laughs) You do eat. You're not a, (laughs) A robot. I mean, one of the like lovely things about working from home or working remote is that if I reach sort of a a natural pause in what I'm doing, mm-hmm. I can go down and get a snack or a cup mm-hmm. of coffee or switch the laundry or yeah, whatever I need to do. Uh, so I really love that my I can sort of integrate breaks throughout my day and and integrate like little pieces of my home life yeah, uh, throughout my day without it needing to be a big, like, okay, I'm going to take an hour off to like go home and do something or go to one. Like I can, yeah, just sort of weave those in throughout the day. My daughters don't do this really very often anymore, but I, I think you remember when you first started working at infinite red, uh, we'd be on a zoom call just like we are here. And my daughters would come in and want me to, help them with a toy, maybe put some clothes on a Barbie or something (laughs) like that as we're working. That was just a constant thing with me. And I thought, you know, it was very cool. Now they're much too big for that. and They don't do do that anymore. But, uh, but yeah, I I love the little interruptions, the little kind of, um, Hey dad, come check this out and I'll go, you know, look at it or whatever. I actually find those things very cool. Obviously the context shifting can be a little jarring and hard to stay, you know, focused on what you're doing. Uh, so you have to have some separation. I have a lock on my door I can use for example, if I'm in a podcast or something like that. Um, and they've been, they, they, they're, they're pretty well trained about like, okay, yeah, you know, don't, don't just bust in, uh, in those situations. But, um, yeah, I love, we've been working from home for six plus years or something like that. And it's, it's been, it's been fantastic. I can't imagine going back to an office at this point. Oh man. And yeah. even now with like ever since COVID, my husband's been working from home a lot more and I've mm-hmm. actually yeah. really gotten used to being able to like, hey, I can go downstairs and eat lunch with him. Yeah, it's it's been great. Uh and I love this sort of flexibility and you know, like we we try to set it up at Infinite Red, we try to set it up where the expectations are totally normal, where Todd, our you know, my my business partner and our CEO, he will say, Hey, I'm taking a siesta you know, this afternoon and he'll be gone for two hours and just taking a nap. And like anybody can do that. There's, it's fine. Like as long as you're not missing a meeting or something like, go ahead, take a nap. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, if you, you know, work a little different rhythm, there are some people that work more kind of better at night, but better in the early mornings, they can kind of choose their own path in that. Uh, so from that stand- standpoint, the flexibility is is really nice, and just even even things like, hey, let's all hang out in kitchen table, which is our Zoom room that we use specifically for hanging out. There's there's uh, there's different ways to kind of take breaks and and step away from it for a little while. Yep, I think we've uh, pretty well <laughs> handled that topic. Uh, the a day in the life of uh, of a React Native developer. If you are, if you have any thoughts about this, please do tweet at us. We do read all the tweets. So you can hit hit up. Uh, you can find me at Jamin Holmgren. You can find Robin at Robin underscore Heinz with an E. And you can also tweet at React Native RDIO, which is our main Twitter account for this show. Robin, do you have any weird bugs that you want to talk about in this episode? I don't have any this week. As always, thanks to our producer and editor, Todd Wirth, our transcript and release coordinator, Jed Bartoski, and our social media coordinator, Missy Warren. Thanks to our sponsor, Infinite Red. Check us out, infinite.red slash React Native. Special thanks to all of you listening today. Tell people about this podcast, especially if they're new, they're considering React Native, you know, have them 
check out this podcast. We would really appreciate it. Reminder, we are hiring senior level React Native engineers. Actually, you don't need to necessarily be a React Native engineer, but senior level engineer that has some interest in React Native, uh, US or Canada, and just go to careers.infinite.red and fill it out. I will read your application, I promise. And I will reach out and let you know whether we're interested in moving forward or not. Either way, see you next time. Bye.